this is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 182nd episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, in celebration of hashtag Crime Comics Month, we're looking at Ms. Tree's Thrilling Detective Adventures number one from Eclipse Comics, cover dated February 1983. But first, a little feedback. Sir, Sir Martin of Grey commented on this episode by apologizing for not feeding back on the prior episode. I'm sure I had opinions on Airtight Garage. Dang. I'm sure they were insightful and learned opinions as well, Martin. And always remember, it's never too late to comment on any episode. Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army, said that as a child, he took an issue of Not Brand Ech to read while having breakfast with his grandparents. My grandmother was extremely disturbed by the title. Thank you for bringing back some cool memories of defending comics to my family. Roland Mann replied to that comment by Kirk and added that he always knew what Not Brand Ech was, but hadn't read any until recently. A few months ago, I found several in a dollar box and picked them up. Oh my, so funny. And we got this note from Sir Luke Giaconetti. Professor, I was legitimately excited when I saw that you're going to be covering Not Brand Ech, Marvel's attempt at a superhero take on a Mad Magazine-style humor mag from the 1960s. Growing up, I read my fair share of Mad as well as Cracked, as I think most American boys of a certain age demo did. So Marvel Age spin on that does at least sound like it should be pretty fun to read. And I admit that I did laugh out loud at a few of the bits you read during the episode. But at the same time, your description of the movie parody as a slog rings true to me. Reading any contemporary humor this far after the fact does have the very distinct possibility of being so far removed from the subject matter that the jokes simply don't mean anything to us now. All in all, I had my curiosity piqued, and now I come to discover that there is a trade paperback collecting the entire series along with the 2017 Revival Mini, and that it can be found digitally as well, and I suspect that my curiosity will eventually get the better of me. Luke continues, I did like that the series seemingly continues to lean hard into the regional New York City Jewish culture, which permeates a lot of those 1960s Marvel titles, but is also a mad trait. With so many New York Jews working at Marvel, it's only natural to see that that sort of humor and dialect will rub off on the final product. The use of the word 
Nudnik in your review drives this point home. That may be a function of my New York upbringing, but it definitely stood out to me. And hey, I can't really be too down on you getting a Marvel book from 1969 for a measly quarter. That's always a good deal, as far as I'm concerned. Nuff said, Luke. Yes, Luke, both Mad and Stan definitely shared that New York Jewish sense of humor. And yes, friend, sometimes you do have to give in to your comic-related temptations. Do it. Chris Willette raised an important point. Did they leave out Dr. Doom because the overwhelming sense of awe that he would bring to the magazine would kill the comedy? Would kill the comedy? How do you laugh in the presence of Doom? It's a fair point, Chris. Fair point. Billy D said it was a good episode. Thank you, Billy. And Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, had a quick question digging at a very important element of the show. Not just that episode, but something that happens every single episode. Who will you be next episode? Because at the end of this one, you stated, as always, until next episode, I'm Professor Allen. Which leads me to think that you'll be somebody else next time, or maybe you're somebody else in between episodes. I think it is time here for me to confess that uh, Professor Allen is in fact my code name to be used only when podcasting. The rest of my life, I'm either Professor Middleton or Irving Forbush. And social media love for last episode came from Ranger Gord from the Prayer of Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast, Chris, the Charlton Hero, Mark Radulich of Radulich Broadcasting, Tim Price, the Podcrasher, Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower One from the Hunters Podcast, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, the Sutherlands from Trekker Talk and other epic podcasts, Vic and Phoenix, Jimmy Eubanks, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, Trevor Owen Williams, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, The Telltale Mind, Chris Lydon 7, Karen from Between the Pages, James from Karen, Jeremiah the Notorious JJG from ComicsComicsComics.blog Chris from Professor Frenzy It's a Show The Doc Bot Spy Vinyl Retroactive Dinosaur and Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit Thank you for that support, friends. Always appreciated. Take a break here for a promo and when we come back we will jump into our Crime Comics Month issue. Hey, Batman! Oh, oh, you must be, because that's Robin. Hi, Robin. Yes, Batman and Robin are here. And Tim and Paul are also here to evaluate the Batman TV show that took the nation by storm in 1966. How in the name of purple wombats do they manage it? To the Batpoles podcast looks at the writing, the music, the guest stars how the show fit into its times, and much more. 
Look for it wherever you get podcasts or at tothebatpoles.libsyn.com. What better way to enjoy the show's 50th anniversary than with To The Bat Poles podcast? Gosh, yes, Batman. When you put it that way. Ms. Trees, thrilling detective adventures number one. And yes, I do intend to comment on that title. Had a cover price of $1, meaning that I got this comic at a very easy-to-compute 75% markdown from the original cover price. I am working on collecting this original run before really digging into it as a reader. I found about two dozen issues, including this one, at the Dayton Comic-Con. I think that was 2017, maybe 2018, in their quarter bins. And now have about 40 of the 50 issues, counting all of the various publishers that it bounced around to, as is not uncommon for indie books of the day. But despite having read those later issues of Ms. Tree that came through, especially the extra-sized DC books, this was actually my first time reading this particular issue. The cover, by Terry Beatty, shows a brunette lady in a blue dress and high heels firing a gun off-page. We see two shots firing back at her. The words Ms. Trees and Adventure in the title are in the same yellow font, while Thrilling and Detective are both in different fonts, different from the other words and actually different from each other. And there is an inset picture promising a famous detective pinup by Frank Miller inside. It is a lot of colors, a lot of action. It is attention-getting. I will give it that. Before we get to the content of the issue, I do want to mention that even though this is the first issue, this is not the character's first appearance or actual origin story. That was serialized in the first six issues of Eclipse magazine. But Max Allen Collins recaps that in the first chapter of this story. Because that's right. This comic is told in the old-timey comics format of three eight-page chapters. Death, Do Us Part, all three chapters, were written by Max Allen Collins with art by Terry Beatty. They are the character's co-creators. Chapter 1, and each chapter has its own title. Chapter 1 is titled The Woman in the Black Bikini and starts on the beach of what appears to be a lake surrounded by mountains. The brunette, who is our Ms. Tree, is in fact wearing a black bikini, and she is narrating. I was alone on the beach, white sand, green pines. The sun is out, but why am I so cold? A couple strolls onto the beach, young, in love. The boy resembles my old high school flame. The girl's face I can't make out. Suddenly, a child joins them. Funny, they seem to be young to have a child. We then see a form rising from the water in scuba gear and a pair of harpoon guns. And he kills the young couple. It's Chick! Chick Steele! I scratch his face and the skin comes off. The flesh falls away. 
and then he's gone. On the beach, the child, the boy, is confused. I want to console him. He runs from me. Then I notice the face of the dead woman. My face! We then switch to a therapist's office, and we see Ms. Tree speaking to a psychiatrist, Dr. Castle. She had been describing a recurring dream. Dr. Castle explains what parts of the dream represent, and in so doing, like I said, recap Ms. Tree's origin story. The couple represents you and your husband, Mike Tree. You substituted the idealized love represented by your first love, but he is the boy. The danger inherent in the situation reflects the nature of your husband's business, which you, of course, have inherited. You are reliving the trauma of his death. This is made obvious by the confrontation with the frogman, who, as in life, was the one responsible for your husband's murder. His former partner, from his police days, Chick Steele. The child is the child you are denied with your husband, the child he did have with his first wife. From there, we see Ms. Tree heading into work, her former husband's private investigator business, now her private investigator business. She assigns her two associates, Roger and Dan, to handle their current cases. She haunts the library, looking for answers on microfilm. Chick, the crooked cop, has mob ties, ties to the Muerta family. And it all seemed to boil down to one man, Dominic Muerta, a self-made man whose trucking company was legitimate, but that was the tip of a dark, rank, misshapen iceberg. Sergeant Rafe Miller, the only cop that Mike Tree trusted, tells Mystery that Muerta can't be touched. He's never directly involved in the criminal acts. Back at work, Ms. Tree barks at Effie, the office manager, who has brought in a woman to interview as their receptionist. Effie tells her they're all concerned about her, encouraging her to seek help, which is what brought her to the psychiatrist in the first place. So that framing sequence over, readers brought up to date, we move to Chapter 2, Second Honeymoon which starts at Pine Branch Resort and is just what the doctor ordered. A bittersweet sensation rushes over her as she sees a young couple on their honeymoon as she arrives. At the reception desk, Ms. Tree's first name causes confusion, which is the final bit of the origin that we need to chat about. Because Ms. Tree's father wanted a son and so named her Michael. She married a man named Michael Tree, making both of them, for the brief time that they were wed, both were Michael Trees. And that son from his first marriage, well, he's also a Michael Tree. Miss Tree heads to her cabin, a honeymoon cabin. That's what the resort specializes in. She gets in her black bikini and heads to the lake, and it is pretty much the lake from her dream. She meets a single man on the beach, Patrick Rushing, a novelist 
of the Blood and Guts type, writer of the Hitman series. My husband read them, she said. I never got past the garish covers. They have a little sexy time of fun, and after, she tells him of Mike's murder on their honeymoon night. Patrick was better medicine than any doctor could prescribe. They chat in bed in the moonlight, only to hear, Blam! Blam! That's a shotgun! Rushing out of the room, she sees someone running from the area of the honeymooning couple's cabin. Instinct told me to pursue the red-bearded man, but first, I had to see. No! The honeymooning couple, both, have been killed. Which brings us to our last chapter, One Lonely Nightmare. It was as if her nightmare were suddenly coming true. A few changes of details, of course. It wasn't literally coming true. She heads back to the cabin, but Patrick is not really helpful. He's a writer and a lover, but not a fighter. I've only written about death, but only as silly pulp fantasy. The State Bureau of Investigation Captain Sam Myers was pleased to let Ms. Tree help. We're lucky to have a trained observer like you on the scene. The question of why anybody would kill a young couple like that sadly has an easy answer. The girl's family name was Muerta. Her uncle was Dominic Muerta, who at least played a role in Mike Tree's death. But the SBI man tells her that the brother, or this girl's father, does not seem to have been involved in the mob. The groom was just some kid from Florida. Patrick fears what is coming next. Don't tell me you're going to track down that red-headed killer. Oh, she will, but finding him will only be the first step. She wants his employer. Patrick asks what she'll do then. Kill the son of a bitch. They each leave the campground the next morning, Patrick back to his job upstate, and Miss Tree back to the P.I. office. They promise to see each other again. On the last page, she announces to her colleagues that she is going to investigate the murder of those kids. But before she can get too far, the meeting is interrupted by the receptionist candidate from earlier. Effie took the liberty of hiring her. Miss Tree... There's someone out there to see you. He says his name is Muerta. The end or to be continued next issue. Before we get going too far into this, I do want to mention my podcasting history with Ms. Tree and then also my history, such as it is, with author Max Allen Collins. First, and I Probably should have mentioned this earlier in the episode, now that I think about it. But this is not the first time we've talked about Ms. Tree here on the Quarterbin. Back in the summer of 2016, Mark Sweeney and I covered Ms. Tree special, number nine, that's from the DC Comics run, on Quarterbin 76, and then followed up with that, it was a, a sort of two-part crossover, by talking about issue 10 on an issue of his podcast, I'm the Gun. Those were the final two issues of those extra-sized specials that, that DC did. 
released in the early 90s. And those issues represent the other end of Ms. Tree's publishing history from, uh, from this issue. There have been reprints and collections since those DC stories, but I'm not sure how much new material has been printed since that run at DC. I'm not sure there's been any, although, again, I, I, I could be wrong. Now, I don't know if the episode on Mark's podcast feed is still available, but the first portion of that crossover is available on the Quarterbin Classics podcast feed. And my one interaction with Max Allen Collins came as a direct result of that crossover. Mark tagged Collins in one of the episode posts, and the writer gave us some really good comments on our podcast in a blog post. Specific comments and answering questions that we had asked each other in a way that made it clear that Mr. Collins had listened to both episodes. And that struck me in such a way that it really gave me a good feeling about Collins. So I am totally biased. That's my confession. The one interaction we had with the man was positive, And so I'm totally in the tank for him. Now, to be clear, I haven't actually read a ton of his comic work beyond the mystery. I've never read Road to Perdition, for example, probably his most substantial and acclaimed work. None of the Dick Tracy strips, some of the Batmans, and I guess a little Wild Dog. What I have read most of beyond, again, those DC issues of mystery is his pulp detective novels, featuring the hitman character named Quarry. Yes, this issue does include a writer who does write pulp novels about a hitman. And you know how I feel about writers writing about writers who write, which has just been a theme here on Relatively Geeky for the last six or eight months. It has come up so many times. And we will address my concerns in a few minutes. But this character of Quarry, uh, there was a four-issue Quarry's War comic miniseries based on the character uh, from Titan Comics, which I have read, and also a TV show, I think one season, based on the character, which I have seen none of. I have also read the Ms. Tree novel, a prose version of that origin story as well. But all of that background brings us to this all-important question. What did I think of this comic book? Let's start by discussing the potential weak points here. The story begins with a dream sequence. A dream sequence being relayed to a psychiatrist. And both of those could be considered narrative shortcuts. And doing both simultaneously? It's a risky move, but Collins didn't want to spend more than six or eight pages recapping the origin, and I guess he wanted to do it in a non-traditional way, I guess. And given that constraint, this worked as well as it could. The dream sequence itself works because weird elements are introduced. The cold, the child who seems to appear from nowhere. So there are unsettling bits, there are questions that are being raised before the reveal comes. And so I guess that reveal is as earned as it could be. 
And we also get to the names, including all of those Michael Trees, and even the shortened version of our heroine's name, Ms. Tree. In pulp detective stories, it's not unusual for a lead character to have a strong, tough-sounding last name. Mike Hammer, Sam Spade, Thomas Magnum. In that world, Michael Tree sort of fits, but you have to be willing to accept the puns that sometimes come with the territory to appreciate the title Mystery. And yes, after just a few issues, the words thrilling, detective, and adventures are dropped from the title, and for most of its life, this is just called Mystery. Which, to be fair, Mystery does describe exactly what the comic is. Oh, and the bad guy, Muerta which means death, because of course his name means death. It's almost as if he's a comic book villain. And yes, the Muerta family becomes a recurring element throughout the entirety of Miss Tree's story. Their paths become intertwined in a number of ways, which, given their role in her husband's death, is a plot element that has obviously a lot of potential. There are a lot of ways that that relationship can go. And from what I remember from issues further down the road, those relationships do indeed go a variety of different ways. Back to the title of this comic for a bit. In a text piece inside the issue, Collins talks about the process of coming up with this comic, working with Terry Beatty, and he does mention that very wordy title. If ever a title sounded like a compromise, Ms. Tree's Thrilling Detective Adventures is it. So right there, admission from one of the co-creators, that that title, yes, it's a bit clunky, a bit awkward. But like I said, all of those words do not last in the title. In terms of our lead character's first name, Michael, that's all part of a theme. The theme of Ms. Tree spinning around, twisting, reversing. A lot of the tropes of detective fiction, at least in terms of gender. Mike Tree, the fella, he's the owner of the PI firm. He's the former cop. He's the tough guy. He is custom designed. What do we say? He's designed in a lab to be the perfect male lead in a street-level detective story. Until he's fridged. Because, yes, the only role Mike Tree has in this story is to die. Make no mistake about that. And once Mike Tree is gone, Michael Tree can move into that leading role. You don't even have to change the business cards. You don't need a new name on the front door. You know that scene in movies where someone comes in to scrape the old name off of the frosted glass door? You don't need that. She can slide right in behind his desk, now her desk, and she takes over. Of course, detective stories have plenty of female characters. But our Ms. Tree does not fit any of those stereotypes. She's not a femme fatale, a fast-talking secretary, or a damsel in distress. Now let me veer into a discussion of the art here for a bit, because it does touch on this topic. Ms. Tree is an attractive woman, no doubt, 
but she's not a comic book va-va-voom character. She's not a blonde bombshell. She looks fine in that black bikini, but she looks like a normally, conventionally attractive woman looks in that bikini. Not the normal comic book hottie body. Terry Beatty's version of mystery is not what Adam Hughes' version would be, or Dave Stevens, to say nothing of Greg Land or Jim Ballant. And we can make a comparison, because Adam Hughes did interiors for the Mays Agency early in his career, and that female detective, Jennifer Mays, is drawn much sexier than this female detective is. Which I think is why this works. It's one way it's distinct. Not saying that Beatty's art is better than those other folk I mentioned, but for this comic, it's a better fit. And I imagine that is partly Colin's direction, but that's Terry Beatty's role too, to thread that loop just right. And that's not the only way that the art in this stands out a little bit from other comic books. You know that I don't talk about art a lot. I'm a story first person by far. But it's worth noting that Beatty's art is a little different from what you get in comic books. It does, to my eye, more resemble comic strip art in terms of simplicity. Angles, poses, backgrounds. Both Collins and Beatty spent long parts of their careers before and after this in the comic strip world. So it's not a huge surprise to see that influence on their work. You're also dealing with the budget of a small independent publishing company almost 40 years ago. So the coloring, reproduction, paper quality, all of that technical stuff might not be doing the artwork any favors either. We mentioned this element during the recap, so we do have to discuss it. There's a writer in this comic, and not just a writer, but a writer of pulp novels featuring a hitman character. In other words, Max Allen Collins is in this comic book. He writes the quarry novels about a hitman. This is him. And even though he does get the girl, I think it's much more the case that Ms. Tree gets him. And certainly Ms. Tree is much, much tougher than the writer. She's the driving force, the dominant one in this relationship. They are in bed together, chatting, when the gunshots ring out. And half of this duo rushes to investigate, while the other half stays behind panicking. And those roles are assigned to the exact oppositely gendered characters than you would traditionally, or should I say stereotypically, expect. And in that way, I don't totally mind the author insert. Because he is so far from a Mary Sue here. He plays the role of damsel in distress. He's the love object who needs protecting from the big, strong, tough detective. And I say big and strong because Ms. Tree is specifically mentioned in other places, in other issues, as being six feet tall or close to that. That is my recollection. Now, that specific fact is not mentioned in this issue, but she is clearly on equal footing, size-wise, height-wise, with all the men she runs into in this book. The art tells that story, and it's another subtle way that we see her taking over for Mike, 
taking more and more of what we'd think of as his traits and his roles and his responsibilities in the story. Uh, Two other little bits in this issue should be mentioned. The series does have backup features as it gets going. In this issue, it's just a two-page minute mystery featuring the detective character Mike Mist. Because this issue had to do the origin recap, the lead story here was longer than it is in most of the issues, meaning they, of course, needed a shorter backup here in issue one. Also, the cover promised famous detective pinup number one by Frank Miller. And what we get as the two-page spread, the, the centerfold for this issue, is a quite sketchy and almost smoky panorama featuring Mickey Spillane's famous detective creation, the aforementioned Mike Hammer. Just as an aside, here in 2022, as I record and release this episode, this is the 75th anniversary of Mike Hammer's literary pulp debut. And if you know anything about Max Allen Collins, the inclusion of a Mickey Spillane reference is not a surprise. As Collins tells the story, the Spillane connection for him is sort of a fanboy's dream come true. He was a fan of Spillane, was lucky enough to meet the man early in his career, and they became friends, Collins and Spillane. They collaborated on works later in Spillane's career, which is after the time of this comic book for context. When Spillane passed away in 2006, Collins was tasked with finishing a number of incomplete works before officially becoming Spillane's literary executor. So like I said, you don't get too far into any article or conversation by or about Collins or a speech by him, you know, presentation, an award ceremony before Mickey Spillane's name comes up. So, of course, Mike Hammer is the first detective given the pinup treatment here in the Ms. Tree comic. Well, as you know, these episodes all inextricably lead to the rendering of a verdict. And I guess that makes I the jury. The verdict on Ms. Tree's Thrilling Detective Adventures number one. The art is a little different from standard comics, and the title is a mouthful. But those are teeny tiny issues to me. I enjoyed this a lot. I love this character. And I'd say in the language of the genre, she is a tough dame. So glad that I got a nice run of these early issues for cheap. And I'm glad to have read this one for this episode. A solid total quarter bin steal. And that wraps up our coverage of Mystery's Thrilling Detective Adventures number one, bringing this Crime Comics Month special episode 182 to a close. Next time, we'll observe the fact that not only is May Crime Comics Month, but it's also the month that contains, most years, Free Comic Book Day. So we will be diverting from our genre-based episode series by providing a second quarter bin for this month, this one covering Free Comic Book Day 2022, which is, of course, the official national holiday 
of the Quarter Bin Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, Crime Comics, Ms. Tree, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the Quarter Bin. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.